We're going to continue in our series. We started this series back at the beginning of this year, and I promise we're going to finish this year, Lord willing. And so we've been calling this series, How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. And so if you've been, help, be helpful to just have a Bible open with you uh, to Romans chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be in verses 14 through 25 this morning. A sermon I'm calling, The Struggle is Real. We have come to my favorite chapter in the Bible, okay? This is it. If you had said, Pastor John, what is your favorite chapter? I would say Romans chapter 7. And I say that for somewhat selfish reasons, okay? This chapter has had one of the biggest influences on my life to change me into the man that God wants me to become. Not that I'm a bride, but that I'm getting to. And so because of that reason, I love Romans chapter 7, uh, let me give you a little backup on the story so you can kind of understand where I'm coming from. I grew up never going to church. When I say never, I mean never. Not a wedding, not a funeral, never going to church. I knew zero about the Bible. I knew nothing. But yet I had a lot of theology. I had all sorts of theology, and this was not my source for what I believed about God. The truth is, I made it up. I made it up on my own. I just pulled out a thin air and I said, yeah, that's what I believe God is like. Let me tell you, that is very dangerous. In fact, let's, let's keep it real here. Everybody does that. That's what everybody does. They just, if they don't know something about God, they just make it up for themselves. Again, very dangerous. And there would be the atheists that would say, no, I don't do that. I don't believe in God. So therefore, I don't do that about God. No, that is a theology too. Okay? That is a system of theology. Only with that system of theology, that makes the atheist the highest individual in that system. Well, more about me. I believed in God. I believed there was a God. After all, I lived in this country. How can you go live here and not, not hear about God and his son, Jesus? And I thought there was God the Father, and I thought there was God the Son, and it was much like the relationship that I had with my dad. Okay? So what I believed about the Father and the Son is very similar to what the cults teach, okay? I also knew about the crucifixion. I knew that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. So to me, what that meant was God the Father somehow like turned his back. He, he wasn't watching all that closely. And then evil men grabbed his son and then nailed him to a cross. It's like, oops, what, what happened there? And I was wrong. I was dead wrong. Everything I believed about God was wrong. And this came, it really came to fruition one day when I was at the lowest of my lows. I'm at the lowest of lows, and I had two questions. Here's my two questions. Question number one, who are you, God? That is my first question. My second question, and what is my purpose in life? What am I even supposed to be doing here? That was on October 19th, 2003. I was in a church that I just happened to be attending for a number of years, and the pastor that day said, open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. And so if you don't know, the book of Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul, the same writer of this book of Romans we've been studying. And he writes the church of Colossae to set the record straight. There's all sorts of false teachings that have crept into the church, lies about Jesus that were just heresies. And so Paul writes the church to say, no, that's not who Jesus is. This is exactly who he is. And so with that, let me read the verse that changed my eternal life. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. It says, for by him, that pronoun him is speaking of Jesus. It could say, for by Jesus, all things were created. 
in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, Jesus, and for him, Jesus. So I sat in a church much like you are right now, and I said, wait a minute. That means Jesus is God. That means, and I know about what happened to Jesus, that means God died. Why would God die? The answer, for sinners. I was made by Jesus, and I was made for Jesus so that I could live my life for him. And God saved me that day. Greatest day of my life. Everything that I believed about God up to that point I learned was wrong. Everything changed because I was wrong on every single aspect. Everything I believed about God prior, I now know is wrong. And God saved me that day. I also, I had some other wrong beliefs, okay? It didn't stop there. So now I'm saved, but there's still some things that I believe are wrong. Here's what I thought. I thought Christians don't sin. Don't laugh, okay? I really believe that. I thought that once you go forward in church and once you really, truly profess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, and then you cry out to him and he saves you, you're never going to sin again. And so now it's only been a matter of hours that I am saved. I've been justified through my faith in Jesus Christ. I recognize, I'm like, I still want to do those things. I still want to participate in those things that I know is wrong. And so then I thought to myself, I thought, well, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not a child of God. Maybe uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to heaven because I know I want to do those things that I shouldn't do that God does not approve of. So maybe I don't belong to his, him. Well, then there's some events that transpired that maybe actually pick up this Bible and read it for myself. I had never read the Bible before in my life. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to read this thing. And so out of the 66 books I could have chose from, I chose the book of Romans. And my, my reason sounds like a cool title, doesn't it? Romans, let's go with that one. And so I started reading the book of Romans and I read Romans chapter one and I read Romans chapter two and three and four and five and I'm not really getting it. It was all Greek to me. There we got one. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Okay, that was hilarious. Leave that for somebody else later. But I remember getting to Romans six. In Romans six, Paul says, but now that you have been set free from sin and become a slaves of God, and I thought in that moment, well, I'm still sinning. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Wrong. That's not what Paul was saying. Paul was saying that I used to be a slave to sin. And when my, sin, my slave master said, John, go do that, I just did it. There was no arguing, there was no fighting. I did what my master told me to do. But now, I'm a slave to God. I'm a slave to God, but what I'm doing is I'm trying to go back to the old slave plantation that I used to work on. Don't do that. That's what Paul is saying. Until one day, I didn't read the whole book in one setting. I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and I boarded a plane, and I'm flying over the Sierra Nevadas. And I remember sitting on a plane, picking up the Bible, and reading it for myself. And with that, let's read the text that I read that day, beginning in verse 14. The Word of God says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
For I know that nothing as good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I desire, for, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to call it out. But I don't know about you, but I'm reading that. I'm like, man, Paul is speaking my language here. We're on the same track. Keep reading verse 19. For I do not, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is still keeping, keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 21. So I find it to, uh, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I desire the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And I'm on an airplane probably traveling 600 miles an hour, and all of a sudden, light bulb goes off over my head. I, 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 I recognize the truth that Paul is trying to see. Here's what I want you to know, Christians. The struggle is real. The struggle is real. Can we all admit that today? The struggle's real? Amen. Okay? And I recognize that in a moment, and I'm struggling, and I have to recognize that my struggle isn't going away anytime soon. And if the great apostle Paul is struggling with sin, and I'm struggling with my sin, we got something in common. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that, that when we place saving faith in him, we turn from our sins, but that doesn't mean that we will never sin again. We think, or at least I thought, that giving my life to Jesus meant all of a sudden, I'm good to go. I'm not going to struggle any longer, okay? And, and, it, and it's like we're just going to be this perfect Christian because now I'm a Christian, right? No, that's not the case. You know, that's one reason why Christians that pretend like they don't struggle can hurt the new Christians. Here's what I'll say, don't do that. Don't be that, that, that Christian. Don't do that. Be transparent. Help the new Christians recognize that the struggle's real. At the moment of salvation, we place saving faith in Jesus Christ, and we are justified. Paul calls it justification, okay? And that happens in a moment, and it, it is instantaneous. But the gift of sanctification, that is a daily process, okay? It takes a lifetime. It is a lifelong struggle with sin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow your mind here, okay? I'm, hopefully, I, I blow somebody's mind. But consider this, okay? Most people in the world, they believe that salvation is a process. That salvation, you got to do a lot of good and, and undo the bad, and then eventually it happens. And so salvation is a process. But then once you get there, there's no more struggles. But the truth is the opposite of that. Okay? Salvation comes in an instant, and sanctification is a very slow, sometimes painful process. So two things I want you to know. First, it, 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 it's a struggle. And the second thing I want you to know, it's okay to struggle. It's, all, it's okay to not have it all together. But here's something that's interesting. You know, often church people will say things like, well, you know, no one's perfect but Jesus and then they're the first ones to condemn somebody who's not living a perfect life. Don't do that. Don't do that. 
So far in the book of Romans, where we've we've read so far, Paul is letting everybody know that everyone knows there's a God. That God has revealed himself to everybody in the whole earth, and so they are without excuse. And we all have rejected God. But we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul has proven that religion saves a grand total of zero people because religion saves no one. Okay? And we are justified by God. We're made right by God by faith and not by works. So salvation is a gift from God that we receive by faith. And Paul's already proven that we can't lose our salvation. Since there's nothing we do to gain our salvation, there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation either. In Romans chapter 6, Paul goes ahead and assumes the very legalistic argument that says, well, if we can't lose our salvation, well, that's going to lead everybody to just sinning it up and just going wild with their sin. And Paul said, by no means. Meaning, no way. No way, that doesn't happen. But now Paul is going to spell out the practical implications of our battle with sin. Paul wants us to know it's a struggle. Read verse 14 again. The word of God says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I have three points for us this morning. Here's my first point. Point number one is really the problem. The problem is we are all born sinners. Did you know that? You're born a sinner. I'm born a sinner. We're all born sinners. The apostle Paul, what he's doing here is he's giving his testimony. He's telling us the facts of his own life. I was once told that as Christians, we should never talk about our struggles. That we should never talk about our our testimony, what we were before and what we were like after. And to that I'd say, what about the Apostle Paul? He does that in every single letter, sometimes multiple times. He gives his testimony and he does that so that we can identify with him. Paul wants us to honestly face the situation that you and I are in and that we are all born sinners. Paul uses the word flesh in, the word, in verse 14. Do you see where it says flesh? It is the Greek word sarkikos. Okay? It, it means belonging to the world. It means natural. It means weak. That we're all born weak. Remember, Paul is writing to believers in the church of Rome here. Okay? He's not talking about the carnality of unbelievers here. No, he's talking about believers that sin. And think about his case example. Who's Paul talking about this moment? He's talking about himself. The great apostle Paul that wrote Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you know, the letters to, to Titus and Timothy, the book of Romans. This is Paul. Okay? There comes a day when a believer gets saved. Paul called it justification. And in that moment, we are a, a new creation in Christ. And we would use terms like they're a baby Christian. Okay? And then you need time to be allowed to grow. Who yells at a baby after three weeks when they can't walk? That's ridiculous. I would say we have to allow time for Christians to grow in their faith. But eventually, a Christian needs to grow up. Okay? They need to start walking for themselves. They need to learn to start feeding themselves. They need to start learning the Bible on their own, start feeding themselves. Too many Christians get stuck because they're always looking for someone else to feed them. Don't do that. Just like a small child, they need to start learning to feed themselves eventually in their life. There has to come that time where they begin to do that. Okay? They need to, and Christians need to do that. They need to start um, learning to feed themselves. You know, maybe 
Christians aren't acting completely childish like sucking their thumbs, but sometimes they're just as selfish as a little child. It shouldn't be that way. There are some believers that find this arrested place of development, okay? This, this spiritual, they get stuck, if you will. They don't grow up. The car, sometimes the carnal believer, they become experience-orientated. It's all about the experience you had in church on a certain day, and then you just chase the experience over and over and over again. And so what happens is that leads a believer to be unhappy in one church, and then to another, and then to another, and to another. And that is a very dangerous place to be because it's going to bottom out. What we need to do uh, is we need to start feeding ourselves. Feed yourselves, and then there must come a point where you learn to feed others. Where you're actually teaching somebody else the Bible, okay? And, and, and if you do that, if you begin to share the word of God, start teaching others, what happens is not only does the church become better, but you become a better Christian, okay? So here's what I'll say that if you're not serving somewhere at church, start serving. I'd say youth ministry is always looking for more volunteers. We always need people serving in the church so that the church grows. But maybe you should do that for a selfish reason and anything else because it's going to make you a better Christian. Actually, living your life out for someone else is the meaning of life. That's the reason we're here in the first place. It's not about self-service. It's about serving others. Years ago, Tom Brady, you know, multiple times Super Bowl winner. This is only after he won his third Super Bowl. He's won many since then. He's been being interviewed and he said, quote, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I still feel like there's something out there greater for me? I think, God, there must be something more than this. And the person interviewing Tom said, What's the answer? And you could hear a crack in his voice. He said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Well, I know. I know what the meaning is, okay? The meaning of life is to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, the, you know, the creator of the universe, and then to live every single second you've got for him. If you want a fulfilling life, here's what you need to do. Know Jesus, learn everything you can about him, and then pour your life out in service to him and someone else. That's what you should be doing, Keep reading, pick it up in verse 15. Paul writes, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Here's my second point for us. The second point is really about the situation. And point number two is that a believer is to struggle. Maybe you're a guy, maybe you're a gal that continues to struggle with the same sin over and over and over again. That there's something in your life that you just can't seem to break. That, that, and if that is you, let me tell you, you're in great company because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said about himself. He, he said, let me just read it again. He, he said, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. But now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Maybe for you, it's your temper. Maybe for you, it's gossip. Maybe for you, it's a loose tongue. Maybe it's impure thoughts. Maybe it's pride. It's greed. Enter whatever sin you struggle with. 
As a Christian, Paul is saying that something here, that something's inside him that agrees with the law that is good, but there's something else inside him that knows that his actions are sinful. You know, Paul has made up his mind. He's not going to do the bad, but yet he finds himself in circumstances where his determination just seems to melt away. His resolve leaves him, and, and he ends up doing the exact same thing he swore he would never do. You ever been there? Don't raise your hands. Now, back in Romans chapter 6, Paul said that a believer has the power to say no. But now Paul is saying, I can't stop doing that thing I don't want to do. If the great apostle Paul can't stop, my question is, then what hope do I have? In Romans 6, Paul says that we can say no. Let me go ahead and tell you what Romans 8 is going to say. Roman 8 is going to say that we're not going to be punished for our sins. He's going to say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the in-between, in-between Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8, there's this thing called Romans chapter 7. I know, right? Just mind-blowing there. So if you feel like you're fed up, you're ready to give up, this is what I want you to know. You're not alone. You're not alone. Paul wants you to know that the Christian life, the real Christian life, not a fake Christian life, it is a struggle. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you have something in your life, some aspect in your life you're struggling with. Maybe it's some aspect of your life you didn't even know was there. All of a sudden it just pops up out of nowhere and you're like, wow, I was blind to that. You've never been exposed to it. Someone points it out to you. You're like, man, how long has that been there? How long have I had to deal with that? How long has that been an issue? Is there a way out? Is there hope? How do I get better? The answer is through the struggle. Let me tell you, I have wrestled the vast majority of my life. I'm I'm coaching at at the high school now. And I've won some matches and I've lost some matches. I've won some matches where I kicked the tar out of somebody, just devastated them. I've also had that happen to me. Guess which one I've learned more? I learned way more for getting the tar kicked out of me than I ever did from winning, right? That's exactly the same way with his brother's struggle with the sin. Will you allow the struggle to define you? Will you become better through the struggle? The answer is don't give in to our mistakes. Don't give in to our sin. The answer is to learn from it and then don't repeat it. Read verse 17. Paul says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That might sound to some like, well, Paul's just saying that's just who I am. That that, it's not my fault. That's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is doing is he's being real. He wants us to know exactly who he is at his core. Paul is letting everyone reading this letter know that the apostle Paul is a sinner at his core. Let me tell you, every good coach studies game field. Not only am I coaching wrestling, I'm also coaching coaching football. And my job as an assistant coach is to watch our opponent's film. To sit there with an orange tablet of paper and write down every play they have in a game. And when they line up in this formation, they, they, they run this percentage of time. They pass this way. I need to know their tendencies. But you know what else I do? I watch our own team's film. And I see where we make mistakes. And I do that because I want my team to be better. Not only do I want to know my opponent's weaknesses, but I want to know my team's strengths and my team's uh, weaknesses. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He knows he's pinpointing his own weaknesses. 
Read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. The word of God says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. He sounds like he's singing the same song, doesn't he? He's like, I am, I am a sinner. I am messed up to the core. Dwight Moody, a great theologian from way back, he, he wants to quote as saying, quote, I've had more trouble with Dwight Moody than any other man I've ever met. I don't know about you, but John Burns would say the same thing. John Burns has had more problems with John Burns than any other man he's ever met. But think about this. The Apostle Paul is speaking about himself. What should we say if we're going to be half as honest as Paul? I mean, think about when the, when the prophet Isaiah, when he came into the very presence of God, he, he said, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. King David, after walking with God for, for years, he said, I recognize my rebellion and it haunts me day and night. You see, David and Isaiah, they understood that they were sinners to their core. We should do the same. Read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. The apostle John writes, says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Here's the truth, church. We all struggle. Or at least we should be. We should be struggling with our sin. And if we're not struggling, then that is the problem. If you're not struggling with your sin, that's because you're just routinely giving in to your sin, and you're just going with it. And it shouldn't be that way. Too many Christians are defined, or I'll say, are controlled by their sins. Apostle Paul earlier said, may it never be. You see, the point is that we are powerless. Apart from God, there is nothing that we can do against our sin. It doesn't matter how many New Year's resolutions you make. It doesn't matter how many promises you make. It doesn't matter how many programs you go through. It doesn't matter how much sheer willpower you have, how much you can muster up. You cannot get rid of sin. Granted, you could be a good sinner, but you're still sinning, right? And, and, I, and, I'm going, and so if we live our lives like that, what are we going to do as believers when we stand before Jesus you say, well, I'm a good person, Lord. You know, I went to church, I tithed, I served once a month, I love my family. None of that matters. We are still sinners. We have to recognize that. Let's use that same logic if we were to stand before a judge. We go to court, maybe we're driving down the road, we hit somebody, we kill them, and we stand before the judge. And before the judge delivers a sentence, we say, hold on, judge. Before you bring that gavel down, let me just say, I'm a good guy. I go to church. I tithe. I, uh, I do all this not nice stuff. And you know what the judge is going to say? The judge is going to say, I don't care. You're guilty. And being a good person by the world standard doesn't negate the crimes you committed. You see, this is a vital step the believers must take. If we're ever going to be delivered from the grips of sin, we have to admit that we are sinners at our core. We have to accept that nothing good dwells in us. Go to verse 22. Paul writes, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see that my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. 
You see, often what people do when we, we recognize that we're sinners, we got some kind of thing we, we were struggling with, what they do is they try to battle our sin with the law. We think, I'm just going to be a good person. I'm going to battle sin with the law. But let me tell you, if you try to battle your sin by keeping the law, that's like being in an MMA fight with pillows duct taped to your hands. Imagine if you will. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you down imaginary road here. Just, just follow this, this trip with me. I announced my retirement from being a pastor, and I'm going to pursue my lifelong dream of going to the UFC. Does that sound exciting? Yeah. So I leave being a pastor, and I get my shot in the UFC. If you don't know what UFC is, that is to professional fighting like the NFL is to football. Okay? And so I get in the UFC, and right off the bat, I get the title shot against the heavyweight champ of the world. If you don't know him, he's a man named Francis Ngannou. Okay? This guy is a monster. He is terrifying. Okay? So picture the fight. We got in one corner... John the Baptist Burns, I like, I like my title there, anyways, against Francis the Predator Ngannou. But to step it up a notch, I've got pillows duct taped to my hands. What do you think's going to happen when that bell rings? Yeah, yeah, it's going to go really bad. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm going to go see Jesus real quick. It's Ngannou win by murder. <laughs> That's what it's like when we try to battle our sin with the law, Okay? And I say this because the law does not change you. All the law does, it puts a magnifying glass on our sinful nature. So trying to keep the law, all it will, the only thing it's going to do is it's going to prove exactly how sinful you and I are. The end goal of the law is not to make us sinless. The, the law is there to show us our sinfulness. And then the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus Okay? You will never win the war with sin by trying to keep the law. It's never going to happen. The only victory is found in Jesus. So often as Christians, we struggle with, with inconsistencies and we, we struggle fulfilling our commitments because we're trying to focus on the law. Because the, by keeping that, we are constantly made aware of how shameful our condition is. To end, what happens is, is that if you try to do that, eventually you're frustrated, and then often Christians will almost try to leave the faith altogether. We say things like, man, the law is so hard to keep, I can't win. And so then I know for guys, they just quit playing the game. I don't know about you, but let me say, I don't want to be called a hypocrite. I would rather do anything other than be called a hypocrite. You can call most men, you can call us a lot of things. You say, you're a loud mouth, you're a jerk, you're over-opinionated. You're like, okay, that's cool. Yeah, there's, there's that's some truth to that, yeah. But rather than be called a hypocrite, I choose not to participate. We know that we're living a hypocritical life, we'll just quit. Rather than fake our faith, we don't even try. But here's the other option. The other option is understand grace. If we understand grace, it allows Jesus to work in me, to actually change me from the inside out. It changes me into the person he wants me to become where I begin to act and think and speak a lot more like Jesus than I do John. And here's what I want you to know. It's a process. I'm in process. Hopefully you're in process of becoming more like Jesus. Does anybody know that that? Usually elderly Christian that is just like amazing. They're like, wow, it doesn't matter what comes in their life. They're just Christ-like, 24-7, 365. And you're like, how does that happen? 
Let me tell you, it's a, it's a lifetime living for Jesus. Because as a believer, we have two options. Option number one, live for Jesus and allow him to change you slowly, methodically, sometimes painfully over a lifetime. Or two, become a hypocrite. We only become hypocrites when we stop being willing to admit and constantly fight with our personal struggles with sin. Don't be a hypocrite. Struggle. It's okay to struggle. You know, there are some great questions in the Bible. I was really considering this as I was preparing for this message. If you ask me, Pastor John, what is the greatest question in the Bible, I might be hard-pressed to go anywhere other than Romans 7, verse 24. Matthew 16 has a couple great questions in there. I'll leave that for your own. But with, would you read with me, one of, in my opinion, is one of the greatest questions in the Bible. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is the cry of every Christian that is just sick and tired of being sick and tired. That is the, 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 the cry of every person that's just fed up with their sins. You know, when I, when I, w- I was unsaved, I didn't know Jesus. I, I think I mentioned this last week, but I love the song Amazing Grace. It's such a beautiful song. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I I didn't know Jesus, and I heard that song. Man, that's a beautiful song. I'm like, why does that guy call himself a wretch? I said, I'm not a wretch. I'm a pretty good guy. No, I was wretched. I just had no clue how wretched I was. And truth is, I still am. I didn't understand just how sinful we all are at our core. The word wretched is the word taliporis in the Greek. It means defined as miserable, afflicted, afflicted with the weight and burden. It means slavery. Do you remember back in verse 14 of Romans chapter 7? Paul said, but I am flesh sold under sin. Paul's talking about our, our sin and our connection to the slave market. Paul is saying, I'm a slave to sin. I can't bear the weight of sin, the burden of sin any longer. Paul is saying, I need someone to rescue me. I need someone to save me. Did you know you can't save a drowning person until they stop trying to save themselves? Every lifeguard knows this. If you dive in the water and you try to rescue someone who's drowning, they're going to flail around. They're going to probably elbow you in the face, and then you might both drown. It's only until they stop trying to rescue themselves can you grab them and pull them to safety. When it comes to saving me from my sinful self, I can't do it, okay? I have to come to the end of myself. I need help. I need to be rescued. And it's at that point, and it's only at that point when Jesus comes in and he saves me. If we think that we can serve ourselves, then then we're going to struggle forever, we often think I'm strong enough. But if we think that, that that is us, let me tell you, we will fail. We will fail miserably every single time. We have to come to that same place of desperation that Paul finds himself right here. Verse 24, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever asked that question? That's a great question. <laughs> have you ever said, I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired? I'm so sick and tired of being a slave to my sin. I'm tired of dealing with this one over and over and over again. I'm tired of feeling guilt. I'm tired of feeling shame. I'm tired of feeling like I'm not good enough because the truth is I'm not. I'm not strong enough. I can't battle this any longer. Who can help me? 
Let me tell you, no program can help you. No experience can help you. No earthly person can ever help you. Who will deliver me from the body of death? That phrase, it carries the, rescue, the, the idea of being rescued from danger, being snatched from the clutches of, of danger, right? It, it's, it's, it's using the imagery of a soldier that is wounded on the battlefield and someone coming in there, rushing in, picking bullets whizzing by, picking him up and carrying him to safety. That's what Paul is talking about. When Paul said this body, do you see that in verse 24? He says this body. He he might be referring to a very familiar term from the people that Paul's from. Remember, Paul wasn't always Paul, but he used to be Saul of Tarsus. Well, in Tarsus, there was a sentence for anybody that was found guilty of murder. If you're in Tarsus, if you're proven guilty of murdering an innocent person, what they would do is they would take the deceased murdered person and they would strap it to the back of the murderer and they would tie him securely on and that was your sentence and you would have to carry around the person you murdered until eventually disease set in and rotting flesh and decay what actually happened is the murderer would die because the body of death is strapped to their back it was latched to them so the murderer was forced to carry around the remnant of their sin I think that's what Paul is pointing to here I think he's pointed to his old nature, this remnant of who he was, his sin nature. Even though he's supposed to be alive in Christ, right? That there's this sin nature that's latched to us and it's having the same effect on us as it did the Apostle Paul. Paul is saying, it's killing me. It's destroying me. This disease, this decay, this, this infection in my old life, it's eating me up. I need help. Anyone ever been there? Ooh, yeah. We're in the same predicament as Paul. You and I are wounded on the spiritual battlefield and we can't help ourselves. We have our body of sin strapped to our backs. We can't get away. Who will come in and help us? Who will come in and rescue us? And this is what I want you to know. The struggle is real. And we can't just let our sin disqualify us from the solution. Does anybody want a solution? You're like, please, Pastor John, give me the solution. I can't take this anymore. Well, if you want the solution, here it is. Read verse 25. Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here's my third and final point for us this morning. It's the solution. Jesus is the answer. Not terribly profound, but absolutely true. Jesus is the answer. You know, just as the lost sinner has to look outside themselves for, to the cross to be cleansed from sin, which we call justification, so the believer has to look outside themselves to that same cross for the power of sanctification. How do you find freedom from sin? How do you experience relief? How do you experience joy? How do you get rid of the guilt and shame that you struggle with day after day after day? How do you get rid of those thoughts that you know you shouldn't be thinking about? How do you get rid of that feeling that you're not good enough, that you're not strong enough? How do you, how do you get rid of that, that I, I should just quit this altogether? Jesus is the answer. He's always the answer. The gospel isn't only for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers too. Do you want freedom from your sins? The answer is the good news, the gospel. 
That the God-man of the universe robed himself in human flesh, left heaven and came to this earth, and then died on a cross for sinners. In Jesus, we find the power to live a sanctified life. Not just cleansing, but also our personal identification. That we're not just sinners, but we're in him. That he saves us. You see, the secret is, once we begin to live that life, we're going to find the source power. And it is walking by the Spirit. And we're going to look at this extensively in Romans chapter 8, where it starts to look, this is what it looks like. Every single day, we make a number of choices, right? Practically, think about it. Every day, you decide when to get up, and I decide what to wear, and I decide if I'm going to brush my teeth. I decide what to eat. I decide where I'm going to drive. I decide where I'm going to go, right? We make decisions in life. But we also make spiritual choices, too. There's consequences, I decide what to read. I decide who to talk to. I decide what I'm going to say to those people I'm talking to. I decide if I'm going to forgive. I decide if I'm going to harbor bitterness and hold on to it and let it fester. I decide if I'm going to pray for somebody. Also pray if I'm going to, I also decide if I'm going to gossip about somebody. And I decide if I'm going to obey what God has told us to do or if we're going to disobey what God has told us to do. But the wonderful thing is the flesh is automatically overpowered when we begin to walk in the Spirit. When we begin to focus on what God has called us to do, that's when we rise to the Spirit's empowered life that God wants for us. And what happens is the mediocrity of carnality that we live in in this world just seems to melt away. As a young man growing up, I had to deal with a lot of bullies in my life. You want to know how you defeat a bully? You stomp them out. I know that's not a PC thing to say. All the teachers are like, oh, don't say that. But that's how you do it. Bully comes in your life, you stomp them out till they leave with their tails tucked between their legs. And what happens is they're never coming back. So early in my Christian life, that's exactly what I tried to do with sin. I was like, I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to serve King Jesus. I'm going to sing worship songs at the top of my lungs. And I'm going to do this till this sin bully never comes back. But here's the deal. It doesn't work with this bully. You can't do that with this bully. Because this bully comes back and he comes back and he comes back and he comes back. To defeat this bully that we're talking about here, it's more like brushing your teeth. It's every day, twice a day, three times a day, every single day. Don't forget to floss for the rest of your life. The pain and the struggle, the doubts we have, the doubting our salvation, the doubting our strength, the doubting our weakness, we have to realize we have no strength. Jesus is the strength. And when we recognize this, when we live for this, that's when we begin to win and we begin to rise and we don't fall nearly as often. One last thing. Maybe you're here today and you're dealing with pain and sadness and guilt. Maybe you're one of the ones just sitting here. You're hearing this mess. You're like, man, I don't understand myself. I don't get it. I'm always angry. I'm always mad. I'm always sad. I'm always struggling with sin. I can't find any freedom. I feel so guilty and worthless. What's the answer? I don't even belong here with these people. If that's how you feel... Let me tell you, you're in great company. We all feel like that sometimes. There's all those moments where we're even a believer, the strongest believer, have those feelings come to their life. Because being a follower of Jesus, it's a struggle. Instead, here's what you need to do. Start accepting your forgiveness. 
Start accepting your lack of condemnation. Let me give you a little sneak preview what we're going to talk about next week. Lord willing, Romans 8 verse 1. Paul's going to say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what that does not say? That does not say you're never going to mess up. That's not what that says. But you are going to struggle. The Bible says there's no condemnation. That means no damning sentence. That means no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus Christ took our punishment on the cross. That means the Father's going to look at us. You know what he sees? He sees the Son. And he still loves us in spite of our struggles, in spite of our failures, in spite of our inconsistencies, in spite of our broken commitments and our empty talk. The Father still loves us. So when we enter into a, in a union, a permanent reunion with Jesus, we find this new power that we didn't previously have. It's called the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity. He's a person. And it's only through that power can we overcome sin. But maybe you're here and you don't know this forgiveness I continue to talk about. Paul called it justification. That we have to recognize that we are sinners at our core. And, God, and that sin, it separates us from God. And God did not want that. That's why Jesus Christ came and he went to the cross. And the scourging that Jesus took, it should have been me, should have been you. And the nails that went between his hands and his feet, that should have been me, it should have been you. But Jesus took it. He died. They pierced his side. Water poured out to prove beyond the shadow of any doubt that he was dead. They buried him in a tomb. He was there for three days. He came back. The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And I think that's the most beautiful promise. And I use that. I, I share that verse more than any other verse. Romans 10, 13. Why? Nobody else says that. Nobody else says you will be saved. All these world religions, they say, well, you can hope you can be saved. You might be saved. No, in Jesus, he's the only way to be saved. And it's an absolute guarantee you will be saved. So if you never crawled out to Christ, I would beg you to do that now. May as you sit there and in the chair to bow your head and to recognize that you're a sinner, that the God man of the universe died for your sin so that you're free, free to worship him. To say, dear to God, I am a sinner. Save me, Lord Jesus. I give you my life. Thank you for saving me. And I say this in the name of Jesus. Amen.